Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today, I'm talking to Crooked Media's John Favreau. I'm a friend of their pod, so I was very happy he agreed to come and sit down on Work in Progress. We talked about his time as Obama's head speechwriter, how he got that job, what it was like to step into the Oval Office for the first time, his most memorable moment there, what made him decide to leave Washington, and of course, politics. Enjoy. So... I've been aware of you for such a long time because of working on both Obama campaigns. Yeah, that's right. I remember. And I remember when he was a senator and went on Oprah and I was like, that guy is amazing. (laughs) And so just in learning more about his world, knew that you were speech writing. Mm -hmm. This is our first time actually like hanging out in person, which I is know. fun. And your dog is here. It's like yeah, a real highlight here, for me. As, as usual, just throwing the ball around. Just being a cute little <laughs> cutie. So before we get into, you know, being the speechwriter for the president of the United States and all of the other amazing things that you've done and are now doing, I, I always like to go back mm-hmm. because you are a wordsmith. You are a thought leader. Who is little john like who who are you as a kid not the rapper oh man um, were you always wordy and and analytical and i was always wordy okay my mom always tells a story that when she would push me around in a carriage in the store instead of like pointing at toys i would like point at books and try to like put books in the grocery carriage wow <laughs> and i you know so i was always like a reader. I I like to write from a really young age. Politics didn't really enter this. Like fiction, little short stories. I did that when I was a kid. Do you remember any of them? I don't now. Huh. 
but I always like I once I got into school, I always loved creative writing classes. And then for a while, I thought I was going to be a journalist, so I took some journalism classes in high school. Politics didn't enter the scene until much later, but okay. I was a pretty, I was a good kid, played by all the rule. You know, was not a. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think that's a, a Massachusetts thing, or like the I household think I had, you grew up in? I think I had really good parents who I would not say they were super strict parents, but they were just you know they. You you knew when you had to be home and when you had to go to bed, all that kind of stuff. So I yeah. I played by the rules. I was a I was a little bit of a dork, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I was the same. <laughs> I was just like, but I have to get straight A's, and I of course I would never lie to my parents. Yeah, that's how I was. You can't break curfew, and right, who does that? Yep, we were. I was, I was, I was at a my, fucking nerd. <laughs> I was uh, I was at my buddy from high school's wedding a couple years ago, and his older sister had babysat us when we were kids. My, uh, my brother and I, my brother's three years younger than me and also a rule follower. And so my old babysitter's talking to my now wife and my wife, Emily is like, so what were John and Andy like to babysit? She's like, honestly, it was like stealing money from the Favros because the two of them <laughs> at like 8 p.m. when they were little kids would be like, it's bedtime now. We're going to go brush our teeth and put ourselves in bed and we can't stay up past this hour and I'm going to read Andy a story and then that's it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Which that's the story my wife loves to tell now. But yeah, that was that was us as kids. Yeah, I remember I had babysitters when I was a kid who wanted to watch 90210 and Mm -hmm. my parents had decided I was not allowed to watch it because I was and then who was it like either Kelly or Brenda had sex with the other person's boyfriend on the show and my parents were like this is unacceptable (laughs) Um, and then I wasn't allowed to watch it anymore and I remember my my babysitters in junior high being like it's fine though like you used to watch it we can watch this show and I was like I'm really no, I'm going to get in trouble. To. Yeah, that's... yeah. I was like getting, I was getting peer pressured into breaking the rules by my babysitters. <laughs> so there's that. What, what was family life like? Like, were you and your brother close? Yeah, your my brother and I are very close. He, in fact, when I moved to LA, I we moved across the street from him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's an actor out here. But we were always very close growing up. My parents are the greatest parents anyone mm-hmm. could ask for. My mom was a teacher. So, you know, we all came home after school together and hung out, her and my brother and I, and um, my dad was in sales, and it was just a really close-knit family. We had a lot of fun. We laughed a lot. My parents always encouraged me to, you know, told me that I could do anything that I wanted to do, made me believe in myself, and, you know, let let me make big important choices right like there is a time when we thought maybe i should go to a private high school instead of the public school but all my friends were at the public school and they said if that's what you really want to do then you should do that and so they always gave me a lot of guidance but sort of let me be free to make my own choices and so i always appreciate them for that Hmm. how do you think that affects who you are today like I, i think a lot about for some reason lately i've been really deep diving on early childhood development and yeah. psychology. I have no idea why. I don't have kids, <laughs> but I'm I'm just I'm so in it. And I think about what kind of a foundation confidence that is given to you by, you know, your parents or your teachers or the really influential adults in your life. Yeah. As a child, what that does for you as an adult. Yeah. I mean, I think what I think what they 
gave me that most relates to sort of who I am today and what I do is this sort of sense of empathy, you know, the, this idea that I should always be putting myself in other people's shoes, that I should see the world from other points of view, that I shouldn't be too judgmental of everyone that I meet. And, you know, I think that's obviously those are important lessons for your personal life, but you know, I'm in politics and I think it's probably a lot of my political beliefs stem from my family. Hmm. And they, you know, my parents weren't like overtly political. They were good Massachusetts Democrats. And, you know, I can remember watching the 1992 presidential debates on the floor of our living room with my dad. And that was sort of like my first, you know, memory of politics. But Hmm. they were not they were not too overtly political, but I feel like the values that they instilled in me are pretty progressive values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. My my family avoided a lot of political conversation mm-hmm. when I was a kid, but it, it was a lot of talking about values. Yeah. And, and for me, my grandmother immigrated to the U.S. through Ellis Island, like okay. came here on a boat yeah. from Italy, you know. So there, there's that very kind of nostalgic, romanticized American experience. And my dad is Canadian. And I remember I was 12 when he decided to become a citizen. Oh, okay. And I made flashcards and helped my dad study for his citizenship test. Oh, that's cool. And so it was, it was this really interesting thing where we had to talk a lot about what it meant like, what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be a concerned citizen, an engaged member of your community? Yeah. You know, and, and for me, it was like, well, why why does it matter? I had questions for my dad, like, why do you want to do this? Yeah. Um, and, you know, for him, I think a lot of it was, I can't imagine, God forbid, something weird were ever to happen. Like, my wife and my daughter are here. And I want to make sure I get to stay here. And it, it was very cool. Yeah, I imagine that's, a, that's an incredibly formative experience, right? Yeah. Like one of your parents getting citizenship. Yeah. No, I mean... It and was now a, I'm like, wait, but my dad was born in Canada. Can I get a dual citizenship right. to Canada? I just want to have a passport <laughs> just in case. somewhere else just in case. <laughs> no, we... I mean, my, uh, my dad's dad was a state rep in New Hampshire, and so, you know, there was a little public service in our background, but it was mm. also, you know, all of my grandparents are, you know, first generation Americans. And mm. so we have this sort of immigrant story and they all, I know, I think my parents both grew up pretty, you know, working class, mm-hmm. even a little poor. Mm. And so that was also instilled in me too, this mm-hmm. idea that, you know, this is a country where immigrants were welcome our families were immigrants but also mm-hmm. you know we can remember when we didn't have a lot yeah. and um this is a place that offers opportunity or at mm-hmm. least should offer opportunity so yeah. i think all of the sort of the political stuff is in the background even if i didn't know it at the time yeah, yeah. So. and it is it's it is so formative it is the, those kinds of experiences yeah. i mean i remember asking my mom as a kid why we don't speak italian in our house and my grandmother, my mm-hmm. mother's mother, refused to let her mom, so my great-grandmother, speak Italian to my mom because oh, yeah. she wanted them to assimilate. Yeah. And because there was so much kind of tension and, you know, not that it's in any way, shape, or form the same experience that people of color have had in this country, but, like, there were 
really charged derogatory terms mm. that my family heard all of the time because they were these Italian immigrants. Yeah. And it's wild how in one generation you can lose you can lose your culture by trying to fit into another. I don't know. I just I think it's interesting. Do you know where your family came from? Uh, your grandparents or great grandparents? Uh, Greece, Italy. Oh, cool. And on my dad's side, French Canadian. Oh. And does then your dad say A? The uh, <laughs> a little bit. Mine I have so, I have a few words that I say that people are like, "Are you Canadian?" Yeah, it's like sort of a half Boston, half Canadian accent. I know exactly what it is. That it's sort of the thing I can. The people who are Canadian always are like, "Oh, you're Canadian," because I don't say Canada. I say Canada. Oh yeah, that's a that's and a like Canadian. there are just words like Toronto that you say and, and say Ameri- about like yeah. Canadians. Oh, my there. dad, hardcore. He's uh, yeah, like, I do that well, too. what do you think about? And I'm like, dad. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Like, no, we're not Canadian. But I guess it's sort of the, it's the New Hampshire, you know, some of them, they all came down from Quebec. Yeah. And then also you get a little of the Boston accent in there too. And then the Netherlands too. I'm a little bit Dutch. So that's, cool. those, those are all the, yeah. I'm a little mix of everything. My dad, my dad's Montreal, but not French Canadian. I think, oh, I think my, my like whatever my dad's Canadian family is like I think generationally came over from Ireland and really I've only learned that because I did the genetic testing (laughs) yeah before I knew they were handing over that data and I was like god damn it I am such a data science nerd and I can't believe I got duped but honestly whatever I was like cool I just what are you going to do with it? Like, I, yeah, well, yeah. I have no interesting information to offer you. Enjoy my background. Yeah. Enjoy my <laughs> breakdown of, you know, <laughs> yeah, the different places. I historical right. migration. <laughs> so, okay. Childhood is pretty idyllic. Family is great. There's, there's influence in hindsight. You mm-hmm. see how, how there's this sort of good citizenry and political influence happening. What is your first job? Cause you weren't like writing no. for your first job, right? My first job, like first job out of college? No. Oh, I mean, like I don't first know. job. Like, as a, did you as a have kid. a job in high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. first, first I was a um, worked the cash register at CVS. <laughs> that nice. was the first one. Then the interesting job I had most summers in high school was I was a telemarketer at a local newspaper. What? Yeah, at the Eagle Tribune newspaper. In, you were selling uh, in newspapers over the phone? It was fucking, it was brutal. <laughs> we Wait, were really good at it though. I did like it with this, my, I did you it with get my a two script? Be- yeah, I did it with my two best friends in high school. We, uh, we would drive to the town next to us and we would just do like 10 hour shifts with a bunch of other people. Just <laughs> where rolling we would send calls. Newspapers, sell newspapers all over New England. So to this day when I go back home, I'm from you know north of Boston, but I go to Maine, I go to New Hampshire, and I like see these newspapers. I'm like, I remember when I sold that newspaper. That's so great. <laughs> and we get, I mean, it was a good practice for like, you know, door knocking and politics and organizing mm-hmm. and stuff because people would hang up on you. They'd say awful things to you. Just, oh, yeah. you know, like what people do to telemarketers. <clears throat> but I did that all through high school. I also, I think it was by my senior year or junior year, I had my first internship that was political in the, uh, in the state house in Massachusetts, in Boston. And I worked for... Actually, a Republican state senator. I guess this is my first year in college because he had gone to Holy Cross where I went to college. And so I interned in his in his state senate office. And, and I really enjoyed the internship and I enjoyed politics. And then I started thinking about that more as a possible career option. What was it? What, what kind of woke you up there? I mean, I, I had always been interested in, you know, I did like student government when I was in high school mm-hmm. and then and you were involved in college Democrats, right? I was involved in college Democrats. I started becoming 
you know, sort of passionate about specific issues in college because mm. I was a political science major, I was a sociology major, and then, you know, there's like a, a, a real tradition of Holy Cross of community service, you know, and so Worcester is the is the city where Holy Cross is located in, and we'd go out into Worcester and, you know, I volunteer at the local welfare office, try to make sure that welfare recipients, their rights were being upheld. And so we worked with some, you know, lawyers to make, to, to advocate for people getting welfare. And I started doing projects like that hmm. and thought, you know, it's great to do all the service, but there's sort of bigger laws at stake here. And hmm. there's decisions being made by people, you know, hundreds of miles away that are impacting people's lives in the community. Hmm. And if we can change those laws, then we can make an even bigger impact. So you know, my interest in community service and my interest in politics sort of like start fusing together. And then junior year in college, I had the opportunity to do an internship in DC. And sort of by luck, I ended up in John Kerry's office. He was thinking about running for president. Hmm. And that was 2002. And so when I graduated in 2003, I joined the Kerry campaign as a assistant, press assistant. And I was, you know, just answering phones, getting coffee, mm. all the glamorous stuff that comes oh, with yeah. internships or that comes with being an assistant. Oh, yeah. I remember, I mean, before college, but in the summers in high school, I had to work for my dad. And my mm-hmm. dad was like, you are going to do the worst jobs there are <laughs> because that's what the real world is. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And yeah, just like making coffee and running errands and like repainting floors after everyone got off work at the oh, studio yeah. and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you, not, uh, it's good to do that work. I think so. I always, I, you know, I, I, I love millennials and I think Gen Z is also pretty amazing. But like my one caveat is like, guys, just because things look cool on Instagram, like you don't start there. Like you have, you have to be the coffee runner. Yeah. There's a and lot it's of. good for you. It's sort of. You know, I think like the fancier the college that you go to, <laughs> you know, some of the graduates coming out of those colleges will think that they can land, you know, land in an internship and immediately mm-hmm. you're like, oh, well, did you want to write a speech for Barack Obama as <laughs> part of your internship? Right. But, you know, I, I always tell young people today, the best advice is like, you're going to go do an internship or take an entry-level job and you're going to do shit work Mm -hmm. and you should do it with a smile Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just always ask your boss like what do you need how can i help and Mm -hmm. if you're very helpful and you have a good attitude your talent will be spotted eventually Mm -hmm. and then you'll be able to sort of move up the ladder and get the job that you want i always tell people that the best question you can ask is what else can i do yeah for sure because if you ask for more responsibility you know, not to be like to LA, like <laughs> manifesty or whatever, but, and you know, if you're putting out there, like I can handle more energetically, people go, oh, that person can handle more. Right. And they start to give you more responsibility and you yep. start, you start to learn. So yeah. this is us coming to you, like your parents telling you I know, to be I feel a like good kid. Bad. Right. Isn't it so when weird? And I, I was a kid, I did all kinds when of When I was a kid, I did grunt things. work. <laughs> okay. So, so Carrie's office, you go back, you're working in the press department, mm-hmm. and what happens? I want to so I want to ca- walk the bridge. So I get there in June of 2003. That's when I graduated. And the campaign is not doing great. It's like sort of the beginning of how that campaign fell apart in the Why primary. Why do you think? 
So at the time, Howard Dean started catching on, if you remember that campaign. And Yikes. Right. And so the Howard <laughs> Dean right. surge sort of starts in the summer of 03, maybe a little bit in the fall of 03. And I was looking back at the polls and John Kerry is at like 1-2% in some of these polls. He ends up being the Democratic nominee. John Edwards was down in the polls too. He ends up being our vice presidential nominee. And so the campaign's not going well. And there's a big shakeup. And the campaign manager is fired. He leaves. A bunch of other people leave. A couple, couple, my boss in the press office at the time, Robert Gibbs, leaves. He was the press secretary. And new crew comes in. And at the time, there's one speechwriter in the Kerry campaign. This guy named Andre Cherney. And I was sitting next to him. And I sort of bugged him maybe a little bit more than an assistant should like we just mm. talked about i was do you need help on the speech and he's like well you're not a speechwriter, but i would always ask him every day and so the new staff comes in and andre's like all right well i do need a deputy speechwriter for this campaign to continue and i'm like well i, I can do it and he's like well i don't think you can do it you're not really you're not a speechwriter. and then the new communications director this woman named stephanie cutter she looks around and she's like well look we don't have any money and who knows how long this campaign is going to last at this point. And so why don't we just promote Fabs to deputy speechwriter? He's a decent writer. And because we're not going to get anyone else to join this ship right, that, right now. Yikes. So Trial by fire. Be, so that's how I became deputy speechwriter. And they didn't have to pay me anymore. I was still making like $20,000 a year. So then Carrie stages this comeback because Howard Dean flames out. And John Kerry makes this sort of electability argument. And he becomes the Democratic nominee. I go through that whole campaign, which is brutal, as you remember. Yeah. I was like, but he seems nice. What's yeah. happening? Yeah. He's a great... But it was a, it was a, it was a great lesson in how Republicans run campaigns, mm-hmm. especially how the modern-day Republican Party runs campaigns. How so? Break that um, down for people who know, don't I think nerd the, out on this as much as we for, do. The formative experience of that campaign was the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, which was this organization that decided to attack John Kerry's war record and sort of record of service and aired all these sort of false attacks on him. Mm. And, I mean, it all seems, seems kind of quaint now, because Trump is president. <laughs> but at the time, it was the kind of thing that shocked everyone that there would be this shadowy group running these ads and that Bush wouldn't condemn it. And and that people would lie. And that people would lie. And not suffer repercussions. Yeah. And, and you know, it was, it was post 9-11 and Bush used fear to win that election to, to say that John Kerry wouldn't keep us safe. And so, you know, I was pretty... And we had our own internal problems in that campaign, too, right? Mm. There was, like, it was based in D.C. There was 15 consultants that jumped on board, even probably more in the general election. Multiple pollsters, multiple people working on every single speech. Mm. Speech by committee, everything by committee. And, you know, so internally the campaign was a little bit of a mess. And the Bush campaign was just, you know, brutal. And so I left that campaign thinking... I don't know if I'm going to stay in politics. Like, this is just, I, I'm, I'm pretty cynical. I'm yeah. like 23 years old. <laughs> I mean, that has to crush your enthusiasm. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember being home in Boston when we lost. And I went back to my parents' house the next day, even though I'd been living in D.C. And I was just, I woke up in my parents' house and I'm just sitting there like, 
I just want to come. I think I want to come home. Maybe I'll just go to law school like my parents wanted me to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that'll be that. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was it. And then I get a message from Robert Gibbs, who had been my boss in the Kerry campaign, who, when he left, joined Obama's Senate race. Mm-hmm. And he texted me and said, you know, uh, Barack Obama writes all his own speeches, wrote the Democratic Convention speech in 2004. But now that he's a senator, he's going to need to learn to work with someone on his speeches because he doesn't have time to do it all himself. He's going to have to delegate. So would you be willing to come in and sit down for breakfast with him and and, and see how it goes? So I decided to do that. I'm having this moment because I'm like, God, what an intimidating thing to have somebody say, like, come have breakfast with Obama. And then I'm like, right, right, right. But Back you then didn't it was know a, then. Yeah. It was, was exciting because like, yeah. he was this like rising star in the party who yeah. gave this very famous speech. And, and Yes. But I wasn't, you know, at that point I had been working with John Kerry on speeches. So it wasn't sure. like so crazy to me. So what's brunch like? Well, so first I, I read his, I read Dreams for My Father to prepare. And even more than the 2004 convention speech dreams from my father made me want to work for him then i got Mm. really excited about it because i thought if someone can write this honestly about race about their personal life drug Mm. use whatever it may be and now this this guy's a senator Mm -hmm. and he thinks he might have a you know a a career in politics and might even run for president you know like who knows if he's going to be this honest like i want to I want to jump on board and see what that's it's like. It's so refreshing. Yeah. So I was really moved by the book and I thought, okay, here's what I'll do. I will see how this interview goes. If he likes me, if he doesn't like me, whatever. If he likes me and wants me to have the job, I could do this for a few years and then go to law school because he's definitely not going to run for president in 2008 because he just got to the Senate. <laughs> and <laughs> what I knew is that I did not want to do another presidential campaign because it, it takes so much out of you. Whoa. So I sit with him for breakfast. It's his first week in the Senate. We sit, you know, in the Senate dining room. Where were you? Oh, you in the the Senate Senate dining room. room. Not where like the senators go, because I don't think he realized he could sit there yet. It was just like with everyone else. (laughs) And, you know, he was, he basically asked me the question you asked me at the beginning of this podcast. He said like, tell me about your family life. Tell me about growing up. Mm -hmm. What got you into politics? Mm -hmm. Just the most easygoing interview that I ever could have imagined. Best, Best job interview I ever had. Asked me about if I had a theory about speech writing. And he said, no, of course I don't have a theory about speech writing. But I noted that, you know, most politicians, most Democratic politicians and Republican politicians too, they see speeches as sort of a collection of sound bites and applause lines strung mm. together. And what I loved about his convention speech was he told a story from beginning to end. And it was a story about his life and how his life fit into the larger American story. And, you know, I said, I think we'd be a lot better off if more politicians told stories in their speeches. Not like I mm. met a guy in Iowa stories, but like <laughs> the speech is a story. And and it's not seen as a collection of applause lines or a collection of like, how am I going to get the most interesting soundbite out of this? And he's like, yeah. So then at the end of the interview, he just looks at me and he goes, well, I don't think I need a speechwriter. <laughs> he goes, but Gibbs tells me I do. Gibbs tells me I do, and you seem nice enough, so let's give this a whirl. And that was it. Let's give this a whirl. Let's give it a whirl. There, there, there's your buzz line, though. That's yeah, pretty right. good. <laughs> the pull quote. Yeah. So, 
what is it like to give it a whirl with yeah. a senator? How do you begin? What's the what's the speechwriting process like? How do you learn to collaborate with him? Yeah, I remember the first speech I ever wrote for him was he had to go to John Lewis's 65th birthday celebration and give a speech there. He was very nervous about that because it's John Lewis. It's John Lewis. And Coretta Scott King was going to be there. And, you know, all the civil rights greats who were still alive at the time in 2005 were going to be there. And so I write a direct... I talk to him about the speech. He tells me a little bit about what he wants to say. We sit and talk for about a half hour. And I leave to go home and write a draft of it. And as I'm walking out of the Senate office, he's like, hey, Fabs, I know this is your first speech for me. And I know you're probably a little bit nervous. But I'm a writer too. So I know that sometimes the muse strikes and sometimes it doesn't. So if you go home and you're feeling it and you can write it, that's great. And if you can't, don't worry, come back in tomorrow and we'll work through it together. That's how, that's what he said. So I, what I, an angel. I mean, just the best. I go home, I write this draft, come back in, give it to him. He spends a long time with these, marking it up, he's editing, he's writing his own stuff. And then he, uh, he comes over to me with the draft that's all marked up. And he's like, uh, so I have some edits and I just wanted to make sure you're okay with everything that I'm doing here. And I just wanted to walk you through some of them. And I was like, you want to make sure I'm okay with your edits? You're fucking Barack Obama. <laughs> um, but that's how, and that mm-hmm. is how our collaboration was for eight years. Never yelled at me, never lost his temper. Was just kind, generous, thoughtful, mm-hmm. just the best boss I'll ever have. What a gift. Yeah, it was, and it was just like, it was a joy, you know? I mean, I was, <laughs> plenty of times that I was stressed out and, you know, thought that I wasn't gonna be able to handle the job, but not mm-hmm. because of him. You know. Wow. Yeah. So in hindsight, because most of us haven't done what you've done, what do you think makes a good speech? How do you break yeah. that down? I think it's sort of what I was just saying about telling a story, right? Like I think when we when we communicate with each other just one on one, we try to tell compelling stories that's how we get our point across that's how we persuade each other Mm. we try to be animated we try to be entertaining and i think somewhere along the line people decided that giving a speech had to be completely different than just having a conversation with people Mm. and and then these speeches became at least political speeches became stilted they became sort of workshopped they're all a little calculated they're all a little cautious politicians are a little worried about what they're saying they all start to sound the same Mm -hmm. there's either people who are trying to do an impression of jfk (laughs) you know or an impression of some other person delivering a big you know a good speech political speech and i always think that the best speeches come from the person delivering the speech so Mm -hmm. i think because after Obama, I went on to do a little consulting and wrote speeches for a bunch of other people. And I'd always say, if you have time to work with a speechwriter closely, then you can deliver a great speech. But if you just think that you're going to be able to hire someone to write something for you, and you're not going to play a big part in that, you're not going to get a good speech out of it. Hmm. And so I think what, what makes a great speech is figuring out at the beginning of the process, 
what is it that you want to communicate in the speech in like two sentences or less? So like figure out what you want people to take away from the speech first, what the message is that you want people to walk away from the speech with, figure that out first and then build the speech around it because otherwise you're just going to start, you know, assembling different blocks together and it's going to be sort of shitty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think storytelling is key. I think trying to make it as true to yourself as possible is key. I think taking some risks in speeches is, mm-hmm. is good. I remember when Obama wrote the race speech and I worked on that with him and you know, the parts of that speech that I wrote or parts that any politician could have written, uh, the parts that Barack Obama wrote, which was most of the speech were lines like, you know, I can no more disown Reverend Wright than I can my white grandmother who also said things that made me cringe and uttered racial stereotypes that made me cringe. When I saw that line come back from Obama in that draft, I was like, well, I could have never written this line. Mm -hmm. I would have never critiqued your white grandmother in a speech Mm -hmm. on race. That had to come from him. And then I remember right before he gave that speech, he said, I don't know if I can get elected president saying the things that I want to say about race, but I also know that if I'm too afraid to say them, that I don't deserve to be president. Oh, God, I just love <laughs> him. Just, I miss him every it's day. It's just like the president we have now. <laughs> Yikes. It's not, nothing's it's really in, changed. It's interesting because the, the words that sort of jump out at me as I'm listening to you talk are things like transparency mm. and radical vulnerability. Yeah. And and I think vulnerability feels risky to people. And, it does, especially and, politicians. Yeah, which is strange to me because we've lost the pot a little bit. Like, they're out there just trying to get reelected all the time. And, and we're over here going, hello, we elected you to work for us. Yeah. Not to run, not to run your campaigns. And, and I think that part of, at least for me as a as a voter and an advocate and a person who, you know, signed up to campaign really early. I was so inspired because I hadn't seen a politician talk to us. I had never felt like a politician had talked to me that way. He was a human being who I trusted. Yeah. And I, I wish that we were cultivating more of that energy in the space. Well, and part of cultivating that energy is, I think I think one of the reasons that politicians aren't more openly vulnerable or transparent is because oftentimes you don't get rewarded for that by right. reporters, by the media, mm-hmm. by Twitter, by the sort of the culture that we have now. Yeah. So Cancel you think to yourself, if that. I say something that I really believe that's a little risky to say or that might not be that popular, am I going to get dragged for this? Am I going to get criticized for this? Is that going to be mm-hmm. the end? And so maybe I'll say the safer thing. And, you know, it won't get people as excited, but at least I won't get attacked. And Mm. I think you have to be, you have to be more afraid of coming off too scripted and too cautious than you are of committing the occasional gaffe. Because if you are, if you open yourself to being honest, saying what you think, Mm -hmm. saying what's not popular, you're going to, and just and not calculating every word that comes out of your mouth as a politician, you're going to screw up. Mm -hmm. You're going to say something that gets you in trouble. But as a whole, people are going to look at you and say, well, at least that seems like a real person. Right. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I've I've had people 
you know, as a person who works in entertainment, but is more sort of political and yeah. into journalism than anything, people have said like, wow, it's, 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 it's really risky, you know, the way that you're willing to just talk about everything. And what I realized, I've never worried about coming off as scripted because my social channels are my space for my own words. Right. So that's not possible. I'm like, a script is the thing I say at work. Right. <laughs> Someone else wrote it. Yeah. But what I realized is that kind of thing that you're talking about, like not being more afraid of coming off scripted than making a mistake. I am incapable of like living within my own body and having the platform I have. Like I can't exist in the world in the way that I do uh -huh. without saying the things. Yeah. Because then I feel like I'm just selling out the privilege of the megaphone that I have and it like keeps me up at night. Now, how do you deal with, you know, the people in your mentions or in your feed oh, who are evil. criticizing you? You oh, no, just don't care, right? Oh, I mean, they're evil. <laughs> like evil. You some of them are actually <laughs> evil people. Yeah. Some of them like, you know, I think a lot of people make the assumption that I just want to talk to people who think the way that I do. I actually really enjoy sitting and having critical debate about issues. And yeah. I like to talk to people who don't believe in the things that I believe in so long as their belief systems are not rooted in hatred of other people. Cause yeah. like for me, it's like, that's, that's my council culture right. where I'm like, Oh, you think other people deserve to die. I can't yeah, have a no, conversation I'm not, I'm not with you. It's just that. A, we have nothing to talk <laughs> about, but you know, we can, we can debate fundamentals and ideas and, you know, fiscal responsibility and policy and yeah. great. I'm in, but I've had to learn that there is an assumption because when people see you as a two dimensional human you know they see you through a screen they forget that you're a human being who can believe in many things at the same time right. and has feelings shocker no, no. that there is this sort of assumption that you think you're infallible and that you think you're always right and i've had to get very clear on explaining my convictions versus versus an assumption which i don't have that i know everything right i'm deeply convicted about right and wrong and will fight for it but i'm always also willing to learn yeah and so I try to have forward-facing conversations about things that I do learn, about ways that I have entered into spaces and learned how to advocate more deeply, ways that I've had to broaden perspectives. And I, I think it's some version of that conversation of like getting real about what you don't know and being willing to own that you'll probably make a mistake. Right. Being willing to say to people like, hey, I'm going to come in here and work on this problem that's really complex, and I'm probably going to fuck up. Right. <laughs> and if I do, please be cool enough to let me know yeah. and tell me how to learn, how to do better, how to how to get deeper. That That has been, I think, the most sort of teaching experience for me. Yeah. It would be nice if we all sort of made space for public figures to do, political figures to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird to me that there's this thing of the first time you screw up, it's over forever. Right. And the, and the double standard is also so weird to me. Like, you know, we're talking about one of the best men, I think, who's ever lived. Like, Barack Obama is a special human being. Yes. He, he is a special, incredible human being. And, like, he got dragged over the coals for wearing a tan suit? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? 
what? Well, what is look, happening? And now you see what's going on, and there, there's, there's this unevenly weighted scale yeah. for some reason because it's like people who are good we hold to these ridiculous standards and then people who are bad we're like yeah but they're bad so we expect them to fuck up all the time and i'm like but except what about when it's affecting everything in the world yeah i think it's funny like not a fashion choice like no the, our future <laughs> i i remember uh after the 2012 convention speech so it was running for re-election we work on the speech he delivers it at the convention. Bill Clinton had gone the night before. Bill Clinton delivered a fantastic speech mm. in defense of Barack Obama's record. That was sort of the speech that everyone remembered. And Obama goes the next night, gives the speech, and we get some bad reviews for the speech. And, you know, we love criticizing the press, <laughs> you know, from our podcast, and we did in the White <laughs> House. And so we fly out of North Carolina the next day. We're on the plane. And we're all complaining about the press coverage of the speech. And I keep going because I'm like yelling about Politico because that's what I did back then. And, and I'm going on and on and on. And at one point, Obama looks at me and he's like, hey, man, how do you think I feel? He's like, <laughs> I wake up every single day knowing that at least half of this country thinks I'm doing a shitty job and a bunch of them don't like me. He's like, mm -hmm. and it sucks. Because, but you know what? I'm president of the United States. And at some point, leadership is learning from criticism, seeking it out, seeking out other viewpoints, but then you've got to actually make the choice mm. and let the chips fall where they may. And that's, he goes, and, I, and you just got to keep moving forward and mm. making these decisions. It's like, if a decision comes to my desk, the desk of the president of the United States, it means that it was such a difficult decision that no one else in the entire federal government or maybe in the country could have made the decision. And so often I'm left with two bad options, but mm -hmm. I have to decide which option is worse than the other option. Mm -hmm. And no matter what I choose, yes. I'm going to get a lot of criticism. And you, he's like, you have to learn from the criticism and be open to it, but you can't let it paralyze mm -hmm. you. And you can't worry about what everyone says about you all the time. You just mm -hmm. got to keep moving forward knowing that you're doing the best you can. It's Hillary Clinton that says that great quote, take criticism seriously, but not personally. Oh, I haven't heard that, but that's a great oh. one talk about you know yeah, being vilified criticism. for existing and and i love that to take it to take any criticism you're met with seriously but not personally yeah. is, is i think such a good piece of advice yeah. and i can't imagine how wild it must be and and it is interesting too you know now i think especially more on the left you see like this hypercritical analysis of every decision everyone's ever made and i'm always like Hello, they had to make a choice. Yeah. Like there there was an A and a B and you're mad about A and those people over there are mad about B, but there was no C. There was no option C or D. And and I think we forget to your point the immense amount of pressure that leaders are often put under. And I, and I do this because now that I'm out of the White House, I've gone back and tried to look critically at every decision that Obama made mm -hmm. and there were some decisions that you know, so there were mistakes. It was the, he he got criticism beyond the tan suit that he deserved at of times. Of course, for sure. oh yeah, for sure. But when you really dig into it, you're like, well, we could either have done this, which people didn't like, or we could have done this other thing that people really wouldn't have liked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and sometimes you're also governing within the constraints of a system where you're president and you don't have a magic wand. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and I think that's partly what we're all. Sort of relearning now. Mm -hmm. I mean, one worry I had is even when Obama was elected, is that 
there was sort of this transactional view of democracy, right? Which is Barack Obama comes along, he's exciting everyone, he's inspiring, all these young people come out to vote for the first time. And the belief was, all right, I'm going to give you my vote and then I'm going to go back to my life and you're going to go to the White House and you're going to fix everything. Yeah. And you're going to deal with it. And that's, and I did my part Mm -hmm. and now you go do your part. And I hope what people are now realizing is that's not how politics works at all. Yeah. Because yes, Barack Obama could have focused more on down ballot races. Yes, he could have done more to build up the party infrastructure. He could have done more to campaign on his priorities while he was in the White House. He could have done all these things for sure. But government doesn't work. No president can succeed unless there is a country of 300 plus million people who are willing to be active in politics and keep pushing mm-hmm. every single day. We have to be actively engaged. And, that's, and no matter who we elect next time, if it's not Donald Trump, like that Please Democratic God. president, <laughs> even even if that Democratic president has a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House, we still have to be paying attention every day. We still yeah. have to be knocking on doors. Because so many of the systems are broken. That's right. So many of the policies are broken. We're going to have so much to clean up. I mean, the fact that President Trump just opened up uranium drilling in the Grand Canyon. I'm like, right, what yeah. the fuck is, ha- what's happening? You have to pay attention like, to everything all the time. You have to pay attention <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. And and so I think... And it's not just because the systems are broken either. It's that is the price of living in a democracy in a country of 300 million people, right? right. It is messy and people don't agree and people yeah. come from different backgrounds. And they have different beliefs and a lot of them are acting in, or, or now that we're seeing, a lot of them are acting in bad faith. But a lot of people we disagree with are acting in good faith. And they're just yes, trying to get stuff done. Absolutely. And the question is, how do we sort of come together and have patience, at least with our allies? Yeah. <laughs> and, yes. You know, and, and work to persuade each other. And operate, I think, out of a little more grace for people. That is... Yeah, grace is a big one. It's that's my <laughs> not, that a lot of become, gra- not a lot of grace today. <laughs> not a lot. And it's really become my biggest kind of priority, you know, as a person whose natural tendency is to like Joan of Arc shit. I'm just like, let's go. Yeah. You know, I I really in the last couple of years have had to reassess the way that I behave in my personal community mm-hmm. versus the way that my opinions can i would i would imagine feel in a in an outward community where the, that sort of tenderness and long forms you know six hour dinner conversation to pick apart these ideas that doesn't exist on the internet right and i went oh i have to figure out how to bring some of my natural desire for grace and tolerance into the way that i communicate in this space that by nature is more short form yeah and that was like part of the reason too, where I went, okay, I'm gonna. I'm a slow learner. Sometimes I've learned when it comes to things I should be doing, and I think that's why finally years into people being like, you need to do a podcast. I was like, okay, you're right. I mean, it took me a long time to learn that now when I have an opinion to offer that might be a little nuanced or complicated, instead of picking up the phone because I'm on Twitter all day long, instead mm-hmm. of tweeting it which I know is going to be a problem because no matter, Twitter doesn't do nuance or subtlety. I'm like, what? I do have a podcast. I can just talk about it on the podcast. And you can unpack it. And it's like, I don't need to be posting all kinds of opinions on on Twitter every day Mm -mm. because the fights don't do anyone any good. Mm -mm. The debates don't really do anyone any good. Mm -mm. You can do that somewhere else, like in person, you know? Yeah. I I think it's a great resource for articles, for sharing information. Yeah, that's how I get all my news, for sure. Same. But I, yeah. 
I'll, I'll, I'll write a long form Instagram post that I'm, I generally am going through then and changing every word and to an ampersand, trying to get like every extra character I can. <laughs> People are like, you really write long things there. I'm like, yeah. well, you should listen to my fucking podcast. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, there, there just does need to be more nuance and attention to detail and, I, giving people a group, giving people a break. Give if people, yeah. you know, I think let people up off the map. A lot of people a are bit. just trying, and they yeah. they should be open to criticism. But if someone's trying and someone's trying to act in good faith, you know, put yourself in their shoes, give them a little break, mm-hmm. and then still criticize the person uh, if they need to be criticized. But don't necessarily make it personal. Don't go after people's motivations all the time. Yeah, I think that that's a. I think we'd all do a little better. You know what? You and I should just run like a something. We're like, guys, if you're going to enter into this space, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to make everybody nice. Like in my head now, I'm writing a show where like a bunch of angry political people go to a therapy retreat. (laughs) And like, we're the teachers. It would be really fun. Okay, so as we talk about how to write and communicate and, mm-hmm. and be graceful and nuanced and, and critical, God, I love critical thinking, and I'm scared we're not teaching it to people anymore, but that's a separate conversation. <laughs> All of those ideas do come back to great oration, to speech writing. And you've mentioned a couple of Barack Obama's speeches, the, the 2004 DNC speech yep. and his speech on race and his 2012 speech. Is is there not just his, um, and obviously those are highlights, but is there a, a historical or a recent speech that really just stands out to you? Is there something that kind of like rings the dinner bell for you? It's pretty uh, depressing that there's not a recent one. <laughs> I, I mean, same. Oh, there, there might have been one that impressed me that I'm just, it's, it's sort of skipping my mind right now. I mean, my... I think my favorite speech of all time is uh, Robert F. Kennedy's speech at the... uh, So, well, there's two parts of it, really. There's the speech that he gives, the impromptu speech that he gives the night that King is assassinated, Mm -hmm. which he just sort of does from a few notes in the back of a truck. And then the next day, he goes to, I believe it's the City Club of Cleveland, and he gives what's sort of known now as the mindless menace of violence speech. And it's just, it's such a uh, deeply human speech, mm-hmm. sort of about our connections to each other and how those connections have frayed. And mm-hmm. you can find a lot in that speech that sort of speaks to some of the challenges that we have today that we've had since then that we've never really overcome. Yeah. Um, but it is, it, it's so poetic and inspirational and so very apolitical in many ways but also fundamentally about how we all live together which i guess is politics yeah um but it's just i i would go i go back and read that you know every once in a while just for inspiration and also to you know realize okay that's that's a pretty good speech It'd be nice if people give speeches like that today right yeah. that's got to be a good it's like it's like the version of the poster on your wall when you're a teenager yeah. of your favorite show, but that's you're right. like, that's my poster yeah. speech. And as, as an Obama speech writer, we, we looked at a lot of King speeches and sermons, mm-hmm. and which I find, like uh, I've read like books and books about Dr. King's speeches and sermons, and I think that they are some of the most moving oratory because 
he uses religious and spiritual language. He harkens back to the founding and the founding ideals and the founding documents and sort of posits in America and an American ideal that we haven't reached yet, clearly, and talks about striving towards that ideal. And in that way, sort of, he has sort of a rhetorical style that is inviting everyone in to join a movement as opposed to saying it's us versus someone else, right? Mm -hmm. It's us versus hatred, but anyone can be part of this movement. Yeah. Anyone who wants a chair can sit at this table. That's right. If you, if you believe in and want to fight for justice. Mm. And so I've always been very inspired by uh, most things that Dr. King has said. I love that. Yeah. So I, I just had a moment, too, because I realized, you know, we, we get into the, the stuff. And then I haven't asked you yet because most people haven't ever been there. Uh-huh. Talk to us about the White House. Oh, yeah. I remember my first time walking into the White House after President Obama was elected. And, like, I lost my shit. It was the coolest. <laughs> when did you visit? What was your? I mean, a couple of times. Um, but it was just... It was the coolest, wildest, like the first event that they threw that I was invited to. And then ironically, in the same year, I went back um, and had a meeting in the Roosevelt Room talking about some policy that I was helping advocate for. And I'm sitting with, you know, Tina Chen, who was Mrs. Obama's chief of staff, and we wanted them to get on board and they did. And they're the most incredible women. But I was just like, what is happening? Like... What is happening? It was such a crazy experience for it me. It's very surreal. And you spent so many years yeah. <laughs> working with him and like you were just in the White House. Like what talk to people who've never I remember the first day been that, there. The first day we all walked in there. Well, it was, it was like the end of the first week. Obama invited a lot of us who had been on the campaign, which mm-hmm. is most of the communications press speech writing staff. We had all been campaign people invited us into the oval for the first time and so we all walk into the oval and i just remember looking around thinking wow we are all imposters <laughs> like we should not including him right because i i had known him before he became president right. he was like so your imposter syndrome set. was just fire yeah, it was like shouldn't someone else be in the Isn't oval there office someone in charge us? here yeah, i was gonna say like why are we here like barack obama's here and all of us idiots that were on his campaign who were all like in our early 20s and 30s at the time. And it was just, it's really bizarre. The, the, the West Wing itself is small and feels a little cramped. It's weird, right? You yeah. walk into those rooms, like the Oval Office is not that big. It's not that big. And that's one of the bigger rooms. And it's weird I mean, to my see office it. was tiny. Yeah. I was in the basement by the sort of where the White House mess is, where everyone eats in the situation room. By the water cooler. By the water cooler, <laughs> yeah. And I had no windows in my office. And, you know, there was no cell service there. So your personal phone didn't work. Yikes. You know, we had our White House email. You, I was basically stuck there all the time. I was like, I would throw on a suit and tie to go sit in a basement windowless office <laughs> and work for 10, 12 hours a day wow. uh, at a computer. And... But it's just, you know, you never you never get tired of, like, seeing famous people and dignitaries walk through the White House. Right. I remember after, I think it was some disaster <laughs> that happened, some natural disaster that happened, and 
Bill Clinton and George W. Bush did did an event with Obama to sort of like raise money. And just watching like three presidents walk around in the White House. I was right. like, what is happening here? And they're just shooting the shit. Yeah. And you're like, what's going on? I also was, I was getting, I got dinner once at the mess and it was like seven o'clock at night and not a lot of people were there and I was just working late as usual. And as I'm getting dinner out of the situation room, walks uh, a tour and this tour was jay-z and beyonce oh my god (laughs) and i'm just like i have my tray with my chicken fingers on it and i'm just looking at them like (laughs) and that was that was cool yeah what a trip (laughs) so there's like moments like that i'm also in my head like i'm thinking about your basement office and you being stuck in there and there's no windows and you're in a suit and tie and sometimes probably like why am i doing this yeah and so what's the because now I'm directing the movie in my head yeah, yeah. where like, you know, the the young speechwriter like tightens his tie and grabs <laughs> the pages and runs up the stairs to the Oval Office to tell the president. Yeah. Like, how, how yeah. does it work? Yeah, What's it wasn't the communication? Like, it wasn't like the West Wing at all. When do you go up there? What we, uh, happens? Usually for big speech, for big speech, you'd try to get time on his schedule hmm. to be able to go meet with him and talk about the speech. And so I'd go into the Oval with whichever other writers were working on the speech and you know, the communication staff, the political staff, the policy staff, whoever needed to be there, we'd sit and chat with him for a half hour about what he wanted to say. I'd type every single word that he said to try to get an idea, go down back to the office and talk with the other speechwriters about how we were going to write the speech, mm. get research from people, get all that kind of stuff. And then it's like a pretty lonely existence writing a speech, you know, like mm. if anyone had ever done a doc, like a day in the life of me at the White House, most of it would have just been like... <laughs> Me at my desk. Do you listen to music while you write? Not or is always. It distracting? It's a little distracting. Mm-hmm. Which I always hate that because I love music, but I can't. Yeah. I can't write and listen to music at the same time. I can't listen to music while I'm prepping scripts either. Yeah, it's but just... I make soundtracks for projects and characters that then like that becomes my thing. Oh, I do on that my a way to work. On... There's songs that will remind me of like, oh yeah, that's when I was working on that speech because Which one sticks there, out? I can I can't remember it now, but ah, I, <laughs> yeah. It's when it comes on. Yeah, it's when it comes on. You're like everything is actually Jizzy and Beyonce. Yeah, right, exactly. No, and then, you know, he would call you up. So, he would then edit the speech at night. Mm. Sometimes he'd say up to like 1 2 in the morning. Mm. Sometimes they were light edits. Sometimes he would take out his yellow legal pad and just like write pages and pages uh, that he wanted to add to the speech. And then he'd call you into the Oval the next day to go over the edits. Or if it was, you know, late at night and there was a big speech the next day, sometimes he'd be in the residence. And so I'd walk over to the residence and meet him there. And he would like sit with me and sort of go over the speech there. The only sort of frantic speech processes are like when we were on the road, you know, and especially on like a foreign trip. We were like minutes away from not having finished the Nobel Peace Prize speech in time when we were in Oslo because we were rewriting the entire speech on the flight to Oslo overnight. When we landed, he was giving the speech in an hour. And so we were like last minute making edits on the plane. I was like sending edits into the prompter as he was walking up on stage. That was the closest we got to not having a speech. So there are situations like that where either news breaks or there's some big event and things get really harried and crazy and then it does seem like a West Wing episode. Yeah, what happens when some huge event goes down and like he's gotta be in front of a camera in 60 minutes? I was lucky because Ben Rhodes, my speechwriting partner in crime, was sort of the foreign policy national security speechwriter. So usually when there was like a 
breaking news speech that needed to be written, it was because something happened in the world. And so Ben would take care of it. And you were like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> like when like Ben knew about the Bin Laden operation Whoa. Uh, or was brought in early enough to write the, the statement. And so I, you know, I only knew when I, on my Blackberry, it said like, remarks of the president on you know Osama bin Laden and Ben's like does anyone have any edits to this this is happening (laughs) oh my god so but you know I remember when Senator Kennedy passed away Mm -hmm. and it happened I think in the middle of the night and I think I got a call from the sit room at like three in the morning to let me know that you know Kennedy had passed away and we'd need a statement in the morning the president would need to go before the cameras so that happens you get like woken up at odd hours of the night if there's some kind of news event that needs a speech is there a special phone for that or like a beeper no it's just it's at the time you have to leave your phone on yeah i just have to leave my phone yikes i keep my phone on silent 24 hours a day see i do that now yeah i had well i remember when he won the nobel prize when it was announced that he won i remember i had my phone and in my bedroom looked at it took a shower when i came out of the shower five minutes later they were like 50 emails on my phone and i was like what happened and it turned out he they they announced that he won the peace prize and they're like well he needs to speak in the rose garden in a couple in like an hour ran into work like three of us huddled over a computer trying to like bang out a statement do you live within running distance to the white house when you work there i did i i would usually drive but i i could walk to the white house in about 10 minutes wow i was pretty close which was good what color was your pass do you have pass. a blue one? Yeah. I, had a blue oh! <laughs> I, I got to chat with uh, Jessica Yellen, you know, who oh, was yeah, yeah. White House Press Corps. And she was like, Jessica. yeah, you get a blue pass. And I was like, oh, so cool. Yeah. Okay. So what, what would you say from that time? What are you most proud of that you guys got to do together? I, you know, I think the night, the night that healthcare passed was the, probably the proudest moment because, you know, I cared about that issue for a long, long time mm-hmm. and we had campaigned on it. Mm-hmm. And then it was, as everyone knows, a quite a struggle to get it done. And, you know, there was a moment in that fight when Ted Kennedy passed away and we lost that Senate seat to Scott Brown, Massachusetts. And we thought, you know, public opinion is against this bill the republicans are against this bill we don't necessarily have the votes in the senate to do this we don't know what's going to happen and some of his advisors obama's advisors told him pull the bill if you press forward with this you're going to lose re-election in 2012 you should have a slimmed down version of this bill maybe just expand medicaid a little bit have some kind of patient's bill of rights and just take a half victory and go home and he looked around and said you know what I didn't come here to put my approval ratings up on a shelf and admire them. I came here to get stuff done. Hmm. If passing the Affordable Care Act makes me a one-term president, then so be it. I think I should get this done. <laughs> I just love him so much. I know. And and, uh. and so when he when he passed it and when he, you know, because that took courage. I'm like actually it crying. <laughs> it, took, it took courage. And mm. when he passed it, you felt like, okay, this is, this is all the work that we did up mm. to this point to get elected, to mm-hmm. get it done, like it, it's worth something, you know, and we're going to make other mistakes and we're going to have other losses. We're mm-hmm. not going to get other things done. And, it, you know, even the Affordable Care Act, as we all know, is far from perfect, but that's 20 million people with health insurance that didn't have it before. That's a big deal. It's the beginning. Yeah, it's the beginning. And to your point earlier, you know, when there's 300 million people, our job is to figure out what does the best for the most people. Right. How, how do we 
defend community? How do we define community? And our, our country is meant to be our community. Yeah. And when people get persnickety about some of that stuff, I'm like, the benefit. Yeah. It it doesn't it doesn't have to start perfect. Perfect is the enemy of good. You right. know, we're never gonna get anything done if we're waiting for the perfect bill, the perfect thing. We should do it and learn from it and continue to better it in yeah. any arena, I think. Yeah, and 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 fight really hard and don't you know, I don't I'm not an advocate of, you know, trimming our sails and trying to start by proposing something that seems like a compromise and all the you know, all the mm-hmm. complaints that a lot of folks on the left have. But I think you you fight really hard for the most you can get, mm-hmm. but then at the end of the day, you have to be willing to say, "Yep." I mean, like Obama did with the ACA, you have to be willing to go forward even when it could cost you politically yeah. if you believe in it. But then you also have to take whatever you can get and then live to fight another day. Yeah, on a lot of issues. Yeah. So, so what what was it in 2013? Because obviously, this is like a pretty wild ride you're having this amazing time and then you were ready to be done with washington yeah but he was still in office yeah it was it was hard what did that look like you know i had been doing campaigns or the white house for 10 years at that point since Mm. the day that i left college i had no other i had no other life besides campaigns the senate office and the white house Mm -hmm. and that takes a toll on you you know my 20s were all that was just working all the time yeah you weren't like partying and probably dating and like socializing not yeah not in like stable relationships (laughs) and at that point i had met my now wife mm. and i thought to myself like you know if i want to have a normal stable relationship and sort of like do other things with my life Mm. i probably should leave now and i also thought he deserves sort of a fresh writer right Mm. like he deserves someone who has some new ideas and new mm-hmm. phrases and new sentences. Like I remember when I was working on the second inaugural, it was like one of the hardest speeches I had done because we just did this whole re-election campaign. He had a stem speech, he had a convention speech. And then it's like, now he needs an inaugural address again. And I'm like, I have nothing else to say. I don't know what else You're to like, say. I've been doing this words. for eight years. You yeah. Know? And it's when it's like when really good showrunners and their shows that's right. when their shows are still good. That's right. That's instead right. of like eking out another couple yeah. years. But it's funny we had been we had been in LA for some kind of fundraising swing and on the flight back I told him he he was like Oh, so you you always love when we go to L.A. and, you know, you always talk about, like, do you want to be, like, a screenwriter? Is that what you want to do? And I was like, someday I thought, of, you know, maybe I'd, I'd want to write a pilot or write a screenplay. And I told him, I was like, I'm actually thinking that I might leave and just sort of pursue other opportunities at some point. And it was so hard to tell him, but he was mm-hmm. so understanding about it. And he's like, you know, you got through the reelection and... That's good. He's like, you know, as he said, as as your boss, I don't want you to leave. He's like, but as your friend, I understand why you should. So uh, it's okay. Oh. Now, I was one of the first people of that crew to say that I was leaving. I think by like the time the seventh <laughs> close staffer told him after the reelect that they wanted to leave, they probably didn't get off as easy. But he was he was pretty cool about it. And That's I was great. and I was ready. I was just. And then you moved here. And then then I stayed in D.C. for another year or two because. I just met my wife and she was like, I'm not ready to move to LA right now. I was like, I just moved to DC. And then I started a small consulting firm with Tommy Vitor 
And we were writing speeches and doing communications for nonprofits and people like that. And then at the same time, we were both writing a pilot for a television show. We wanted to write about a bunch of young people on a campaign in Iowa was our idea. And we had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) So we wrote this pilot and thought that we would come to LA and shop it around. Lovett had already been out here. He did 1600 pen. We're like, well, Lovett came out and got a television show, so we should be able to do that too. So I moved out to, uh, Tommy moved to San Francisco. I moved to LA. We kept our consulting business. The pilot did not go anywhere. And then, you know, I got really sick of consulting really fast Mm. just because I love writing speeches and we had great clients because we got to pick and choose who we were writing for. But, you know, it just wasn't the same and I miss politics Mm. and I miss being involved and I miss making a difference. And that was around the time that Bill Simmons, who I knew because he also went to Holy Cross and from Boston, said, you know, why don't you do a podcast on my network about politics? Because I'm looking to have some political coverage in addition to sports and tech and culture and all the other stuff that we do. Hmm. So Pfeiffer and I and and then eventually Tommy and Lovett all started the podcast with him. And that was like the first I, I hadn't even heard about podcasts before that, really. I'd, I'd heard right. Bill's podcast, but that was about it. I wasn't like an avid podcast listener. And how was that? It was great. I mean, I was like, I don't think we're going to be any good at this. <laughs> you know, we just started shooting the shit about politics and it sort of worked. And then, you know, the, obviously the show shifted a great deal between right after the 2016 election because yeah. we thought we were doing a show that was just being pundits about politics. And then sort of Hillary losing made us all realize, oh, yeah, we're not out of this. And we don't want to be out of this. Like, yeah. we, we have to be in the fight here. We have to be in it. And so what what would you say on the, you know, obviously in the forward space, you're having conversations on the podcast, but you're producing this thing. You're thinking about the impact you're making on the world. 2016 happens and everybody gets rocked. Yeah. What, what about the sort of mission statement changed? Like how did, how did, the way you thought about the podcast and the media brand really yeah. changed. A couple things. One, we, you know, we always joke about this, but we're out of the prediction business. Mm. So we don't like to talk about what, mm-hmm. you know, we, sometimes we talk about what might happen or at least tell people the options, the things that might happen, but we don't like to really predict. And, you know, the mission of this company is, of Crooked Media and Pod Save America is to inform, entertain, and inspire action. Mm. And the inspire action part is really key because I don't think... There's a lot of media companies out there, certainly not on the left, that, you know, tell their listeners and their audience every day, here's what you can do to change the world around you yes. specifically. Action is so important. It's, it's very important. And I think, you know, we see everything we do here as a balance. Like if we do too much of the entertaining, then it's just sort of silly and it's not serious. If we don't do enough of it, then it's boring and dry. If we forget to tell people, here's what you can do to change things, then we're just like every other pundit. So we do try to balance between all those, you know, those three goals in the mission statement. But yeah, I just, I I think that after Trump won, there's a lot of people, some people who've been paying attention to politics for a long time. There's other people who it's the first time they really started paying attention closely. And they were thinking to themselves, where do I go for information? What do I do now? How worried should I be? Mm-hmm. There's a million news stories a day that seem awful. Which one should I really care about? Mm-hmm. And and how can I make an impact? And we decided that we would be, a, you know, a, a media organization that helped answer those questions for people. And help serve as a filter. Yeah. 
Because there is, there's so much information out there that people are fatigued. It's exhausting. It feels stressful. The news, by the way, they like model the news after actual cage matches. And it's like, what a hot mess. Well, I know, and I've thought this about the media for a long time, ever since before I was in the White House even. The act of watching the news, if you watch the network news or you watch cable, you're basically fed nonstop bad news Mm -hmm. about the whole world. Mm -hmm. This is bad. There's a hurricane here. This person died here. There's a murder here. This bad political Mm -hmm. thing is occurring. And then like, here's our commercial for you know, some Lipitor drug. (laughs) And there's like uh, two old people in side by side bathtubs. Here's the weather. That's going to be bad too. And (laughs) now, now we're done. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. And it basically just tells you like all the awful things that happen in the world and doesn't, it doesn't give you any options to change it. Hmm. And, you know, I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a media company where we talk about the awful things that are happening in the world seriously, but we actually give people a way out. And where you can talk about good that's happening, too. Yeah. We can't turn away from what's bad. We can't, you know, act like ostriches and stick our heads in the sand. But it's also really important to highlight what good community work is being done, what incredible activism is happening, like the the change that people are making and demanding in their spaces. I, I and just, that's not being Pollyannish either. That's, no. It's... it's because that's why would you why would you keep fighting if you didn't have hope yeah. that it could work yeah and that hope comes from pointing out all the ways it's worked in the past and mm-hmm. it's currently working today mm-hmm. that's that to me is the key like i have so much hope i have a friend who is from bears ears and she lived in la for a long time and she just moved home and she said that it was really watching all of the women get elected in the midterms she was like if it's not me then who right you know and she moved home, and, and one of the things that she's doing is work in Bears Ears because, you know, Obama protected all of this incredible land, which yeah. deserves to be protected, and Trump undid it because he's like a five-year-old child yeah. who wants to burn everyone else's toys. <laughs> and, you know, and my friend is working with all of the elders, all of the elder, you know, wise women from like six different native tribes that live in Bears Ears. And she's helping activate, you know, like ranchers to be like, no, their interests are our interests. Yeah. And I'm just like, you give me all the hope. Like I get photos from these gatherings of these women and I'm just like, I can't wait for this story to be out there in a bigger way because this is what people need to see. Like, look what we can do if we, if we really invest in the right way. And we need to be motivated like that. Yeah. How do you guys, because you've talked a lot about like the the difference between having an opinion mm-hmm. and then being a propaganda machine. Yeah. So I imagine that to make sure that you're talking about well-informed and educated opinions here at Crooked Media, like how, is there a mission statement? Is there kind of like a framework that you make sure things fit into? And if they don't, they just don't get to be here how, how do you kind of keep that line Not, i mean it's it's pretty loose <laughs> <laughs> you're I like mean, it's, it's more of a squiggle it's yeah it's a it's a constant struggle right because it is very easy in the trump era to scream about everything bad and scream about republicans mm-hmm. and we often do that but i also want to make sure that we are being factual, Mm -hmm. that we are making an argument, Mm -hmm. that the argument has logic, that we are not forgetting that you should 
try to persuade people to mm-hmm. your view as opposed to just assume that they already have your view. Mm-hmm. And I always am trying to make sure we catch ourselves if we go too far down the like, let's rant about everything <laughs> path. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a great staff who make sure that all of our facts are straight. Mm-hmm. And if we make a mistake and we say something wrong, we, we admit it, you know? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, we screwed up there. That's fine. So that's that's what we try to do. But I do think, I think, you know, persuasion is sort of a, a lost art yeah. <laughs> in politics these days. But then I guess I wonder, because obviously there's no speeches being followed yeah. in our current political, I, I mean, arena. What do we call it? Cage match? Circus. Well, yeah. Circus nightmare. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be really positive, I swear. <laughs> but like thoughts for you, especially with your background, like Trump as an orator or or as a babbler, I don't know what we want to call yeah. him, but like, why, why is he successful? He can't say words. Right. And he says things that are lies every day. I mean, he's told over 10,000 lies to the American public. Yeah. And then he says shit that's just so stupid. Like, you know, they took the airports and it's like, there were no airports, yeah. bro. Like there were no planes. What are you talking about? So why is this working? I think it's working because, so people give him a pass for all the airport shit. Cause they say, you know, they think about their own lives and they're like, I screw up. I, I mispronounce things. It's fine. I, you know, that's, I'm not saying that's great. But I think he, so he is a a cable news savant who became president. He's like a cable news fan, right? So if you've ever had like, I mean, you can tell by his Twitter, right? It's like, had like something's at, on at six oh six on Fox, and at six eleven he's tweeting about it, and I'm like, oh my god, and, turn off the TV and do some work, right? And like everything we were just talking about about how dark the news is, yeah. Like, have you ever had a relative who, you know, I've had grandparents like this too, who just like watch the local news all the time and then you see them and they're like, oh, did you, you got to be careful. There was a double murder here and this was bad. And they become, you become a critic of everything when Mm. you watch the news too much. Right. And that's sort of what Trump does. Like he's very good at telling people or reaffirming to people what they think is bad about the world. Or what they they think they're afraid of. What they think they're afraid of, Mm. what they think is dangerous out there, what they should be scared of, what Mm. they should be angry about. Mm. He's very good at channeling that for a lot of people or introducing new things that people should be afraid of or angry about. It's so abusive. It's very abusive. It's like, it's, it is, it's what demagogues do, you know? And I don't think, I don't even think he he planned to be like this, right? Like, I don't think he has this, like, secret fascist who has a, who had this plan to take over the world. I think it is his personality is one of a demagogue, right? Which is, I'm going to go out there. He's, he's a narcissist. Mm-hmm. And textbook. Textbook narcissist. Mm-hmm. But his idea is, I'm going to go out there and say what a lot of people are thinking about what's wrong. And I'm not going to, and he's not one for solutions. He's just, he's always like, yeah, I'm going to fix it. I, this the I alone can fix it. Mm. And he, I think he spoke to, he obviously spoke to racial resentment. He spoke to xenophobia. And he spoke to the frustration that a lot of people had with the political system not producing results for a long time. So how many years of the media saying that all politicians are a little bit corrupt in both parties and Washington is a broken place and special interests control everything. And politicians in both parties have run those ads. Right. And so here comes Trump 
saying everything you know about politics, everything you hate about politics, everything you hate about Washington, I am outside that. And I don't give a shit about those people. And I'm very successful. I'm rich. But he's not. I can go in there and I can fucking shake things up. Yeah. And that's why you get, I mean, if you looked at the group of voters who went to the polls in 2016 and said they disliked Hillary Clinton and disliked Donald Trump, he won those voters by like 10, 15 points. They didn't like both candidates, but they wanted him because they thought he was going to be changed. Yeah. And so I, and I, but I think the silver lining there is now he's president and he's been president for four years. And it's so, so what he bad. loses, what he doesn't, what he can't have in 2020, which he was able to have in 2016 is I'm outside the system and I can go in there and fix right. things and shake things up because now he's had four years to do it. And I think having to run on your record when he has a record like he does is a little bit tougher. Yeah. Well, when you're embracing dictators and spitting in the face of the intelligence right. community, I mean, the joke that that there's this idea that conservatives are like pro-law enforcement. I'm like, cool, because no one's ever been more disrespectful to law enforcement yeah, than no, this guy. Uh, like, a lot, lot, lot of values and long-held beliefs went out the window. It's all, but it's all <laughs> just so crazy. It's like the you realize that they haven't been values. They've been campaign slogans. Yep. And look, I to your point earlier, there are letdowns, I think, on both sides of the field. But yeah. like, I yeah, I wish that the ACA had been a more comprehensive bill for people. Yeah, I'm too. not like, there's nothing happening with Barack Obama where I'm like, oh, he embraced a dictator who murders people. Like, yep. he literally gave a world leader a pass for executing an American journalist and cutting up his body. Like, what? How are we not talking about that? Well, like, look, and that's a good, like, if I asked, you know, Tommy and Ben this, I'm like, if, so we had this relationship with Saudi Arabia when for, we've had it forever, right? Where we've known that there it's an autocracy and they don't do great things. But yep. like for a while we were stuck with them because of oil, frankly, and because of like other Middle Eastern relationships mm-hmm. and not wanting to start other wars and stuff like that. But it's like if Khashoggi had been killed by MBS when Obama was president, like I don't think we would be – I don't know that we could be as extreme as people would want us to be against Saudi Arabia, but – Certainly. <laughs> Something. Certainly a lot more than this. Certainly he wouldn't be having breakfast with MBS when he, you know, the last foreign pol- foreign summit that he was at. Yeah. You know, like he just, there's obviously cons- political constraints for every president. Yes. And disappointments for every president. But this is unique and mm-hmm. different and dangerous. Well, we, we do seem to forget that presidents have to exist in the world that exists, right. not in the world that we want yeah. them to create for us. Right. But yeah, this is wild. This, this is, is wild. a this is a wild. <laughs> it's just a wild thing to witness. I'm like, wow, everybody who has ever said they believe in something has apparently been lying. If this is going to continue, okay. Yeah. How do we get back? Do you think? Like, how how do we pull back from the inane and re-enter an arena where? Thoughtful presidential speeches matter, <laughs> where having a leader who inspires rather than a leader who instills outlandish fear, how, how do we how do we rein it in? You know, it's on it's on every single one of us and we have to we just have to be paying attention. We have mm-hmm. to be paying attention and being involved. Mm-hmm. I really do believe I mean it's it's it sounds almost trite, but I think we have to in in some ways the country gets the politics and the government that we deserve. Mm. And I don't, I don't think that we deserve this right now, but it is a, it should be a wake up call to everyone to 
you know, be involved in politics is an everyday struggle. Democracy is an everyday struggle. And that means everything from donating to candidates to making phone calls to knocking on doors Mm -hmm. to pushing our leaders when the people we vote for aren't going far enough or aren't doing Mm -hmm. what we thought that they were supposed to do, Mm -hmm. pushing them harder on it. And that's all of us have to do that. Yeah. I've got the Senate on speed dial. What's that? I've got the Senate on speed dial. When I'm stuck in traffic, I'm like, here we go. I think Make some calls. And then I do think it's the attitude of, you know, what we were talking about earlier, which is being somewhat patient with each other, right? Like sort of showing that grace that you're talking about. Like I think all of us could use a little more of that. And Mm -hmm. part of that is meeting people in person, debating this kind of stuff in person. Like I do think there's this sort of toxic online culture and cable media and all that kind of shit Mm -hmm. that it's easier, it's faster, but it's not a substitute for a bunch of people getting together and organizing together and knocking on doors and yeah. and being involved in politics. Together. Organizers are my heroes. Me too. Me too. And in you know when someone when someone who's an organizer throws criticism at me, I'm I, I listen and I want to learn from it because yeah. I know that that person's been in the arena. And if even if we don't agree, I know that they're trying. You know, mm-hmm. when like a random person who's you know just <laughs> not trying mm. throws something at you, then you don't listen to it as much. But organizers yeah. are heroes. They really are. Yeah. So you talk about paying attention and being informed. When there's this much on fire, yeah. how do you guys, I mean, you as a person, but I'm also curious about how Crooked Media as an organization, like how do you keep up with all of this? How do you make sense of all of it? It's, I, this is my problem. I'm like on, on my phone, on the, my Twitter feed all day long. You yeah, know, I'm just too. like constantly consuming news. And it is... It's all about trying to filter out what matters most, mm-hmm. which I always think about. Like sometimes there's scandals, but you think, okay, how many people are affected by this issue yep. at any one time? And so like, is the census rigging scandal the sexiest scandal? Not really, but is it going to matter if we <laughs> have a census undercount and political power is shifted yes. for a generation? Yeah, a lot. So we should talk about it. Yeah. And how do we start telling stories around that that are interesting enough that they activate people who might have otherwise said, like, I don't care about the census. It's like, no, 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 no. Right. You really need to care about the yeah. census, though. Well, and, that, and look, a lot of what we're doing now is, is we branch out beyond Pod Save America and we're doing a lot of sort of like narrative style podcasts and producing mm. stuff like that. You know, we released this podcast called This Land, which is about a Supreme Court case that could decide the fate of half the land in Oklahoma and give it back to the tribes. Mm-hmm. And this woman, Rebecca Nagel, who's a journalist in Cherokee, she sort of wrote the story about this case. She'd been the journalist on the case. And we said, let's do a podcast about mm-hmm. how Native Americans have been treated in this country, how they lost so much of their land, what yes. the country did to them. And which is important information for people to learn, mm. but it's also told as a compelling story because we're waiting for the Supreme Court to decide this case. Yes. And there were murders involved, and so it's sort of a murder mystery too. But like, so we're, we're, we're thinking about how can we produce more content, more stories like that that can sort of impart really important information, yeah. but do it in a sort of an entertaining, compelling way. So when we talk about it really interesting things that you guys are doing. I'm I'm kind of fascinated because y'all have started a couple of funds. Mm. What's that all about? So we have our Unifier Die Fund, which is a fund that will the money will go to the eventual Democratic nominee, mm. 
And love that. Basically, we started this fund because there's this primary where there's a million people running for president. It is insane. It's insane. Two nights, it, two of, nights of initial debates. Just, yeah. I was like, what is happening? You can, yeah, it's easier to count the people who aren't running for president. And so, having been on campaigns before, what happens is when there's an incumbent president, the incumbent president just raises money all day long. Yeah. The Republican National Committee is raising money all day long. They have, you know, more than $100 million on hand already. Yikes. We know what these candidates are raising. They're raising five, ten, fifteen, twenty million dollars. I feel like Jeff Bezos owes us. Yeah, he does. Like, shouldn't he just be like, whatever the RNC has, I'll double just it. Cut the check, yeah. Just cut a check, bro. You could uh, you wouldn't even notice it was gone. Yeah. The problem is is honestly with that, I mean, people can give unlimited contributions, unfortunately, to super PACs and committees and stuff yeah. like that. But what the candidate themselves can control, there's mm. obviously fundraising limits with mm-hmm. it. So all these candidates running for president are gonna spend all their money battling it out with each other with each other and by the time we have a nominee that person will have almost no money in the bank mm-hmm. and so the idea is let's get a big pot of money so that when we finally do have a nominee that they person. just get it and i like that if you want to donate and you're still not sure who to donate to of all the primary candidates this is a great fund to donate to yeah i mean we're probably going to do similar fun we're also we also have a gerrymandering fund too oh good called fuck jerry fuck gerrymandering love and, um, that yeah and so that is for you know the virginia State legislature yeah. is up this uh, in 2019. Thank God. I know. And so we could easily flip that. There's yeah. like a couple seats away from flipping that to Democratic control. And um, and we can end gerrymandering. Yeah. So, and we need to. And we need to. It's bad news for everyone. It is. Okay. And we just said, I mean, there's one million candidates. Like yeah. you and I could be running for president at this point. <laughs> Who do you like? Yeah. it's I, Honestly, as... I mean, we're not. We're trying not to play favorites here yeah. at Crooked Media. It doesn't have to but be one. Even it if could you be gave, like, yeah, you could say, say five, and it would still be. <laughs> even if you gave me, you know, truth serum and asked, yeah, <laughs> personally, I've never had a tough time picking a candidate until now, hmm. because I have been impressed by a bunch of them. I've yeah. been really impressed with Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Me too. I just think from a from a, like a mechanics perspective of what you have to do to win an election. Mm-hmm message policy organization digital all that kind of stuff she's sort of nailing it she's um and i think i think kamala harris is incredibly charismatic Mm -hmm. she's tough as nails she crushed it on the debate stage yep so i'm you know i've been impressed with her impressed with mayor pete yep i think he you know we talked a lot about sort of having the courage to say what you believe in being yourself and putting yourself out there is vulnerable. And yeah. there he was on that stage saying, you know, I, I screwed up in South Bend. I didn't get it done. I'm sorry. You know, that's, that's exciting. I have a, you know, I, I love Joe Biden because I worked with Joe Biden in the white house and he's a good and decent man. And I think he has, you know, his campaign has had some problems and he's had some problems. So I, I don't, you know, I have a personal affection for Joe Biden, but we will, uh, we'll see how his campaign goes. Mm. You know, we did a document. This is one of those moments where I embrace the grace and I'm just like, I'm just going to let yeah, you talk. No, it's I a, don't have to add to this. It's a tough one. And then, you know, we did a documentary. Our first documentary at Crooked Media was about Beto O'Rourke's Senate race. Mm-hmm. And so we got to know him a little bit. And you know, he's been struggling to break through in this race, but he is an earnest, kind, he's decent amazing. human being. I did a bunch inspiring. of fundraisers for him in Chicago. Yeah. He's isn't he, he's a great guy. He's unbelievable. And, you know, he's he's an example of someone who's incredibly talented, who I think hasn't been running 
as good of a campaign as he probably could. Well, and I do hope that what winds up happening for him, like I, w- I would love to see him get some real Senate experience. I, yeah. I, I would, and I would, I would love to see him be elected yeah. to many offices over yeah. the course of his career. And I, and I do think, yeah, to your point, like maybe it's just that he's a bit green for this arena and that's okay. Cause he's still adding some real integrity to the space I at mean, this what point. I, and I think that's great. What I've told you know, every campaign candidate who's ever looking for advice in. Do they all call you? No, not really. I just, (laughs) they do do not call. You made a face. You're like, they, they a lot of them call. No, No, a lot of them call. That's cool. I would call you if I was running for office. I'd be like, I need to ask you 647 questions. I'll buy you a coffee. In this race or any race. Mm. And I've said this, I say this on the pod all the time. In a field that is, this large, this talented, mm. this diverse. If you are running for president, you need to have an argument about why you, why now? Mm. And why are you different than all of the other candidates on that stage? What, what unique qualities do you bring to the race at this moment in time? And why is it important at this race at this moment in time? And that message has to be so sharp and so clear from the get-go mm-hmm. that... You know, even people who are just casually paying attention to politics can recite it and know yeah. what you're about. And you look at the field now, whether you agree with her or not, whether you like her or not, everyone knows what Elizabeth Warren's message is. They know what she stands for. They know what she's about. Yep. You know that Pete Buttigieg is generational change. That's his deal. He's the young mayor, right? That's mm-hmm, his thing. Mm-hmm. So like you sort of, those are two candidates that I think have sort of nailed the message part of it. And I think if you really want to be, and there's plenty of time for other candidates to nail that too. But if you want to be successful, especially in a field this large, you need to have those answers. Yeah. So. Okay. Last question. Cool. And we talked a little bit about this. You know, I think when, when you have amassed some kind of public success, there's a big assumption that you have it all figured out. Yeah. And in my experience, everyone's still trying to figure it out. Yeah, for sure. And that's why the podcast is called Work in Progress. So what in your life, and it could be personal, professional, political, it could be about your dog, (laughs) what feels like a work in progress to you right now? I think, you know, my mom always used to tell me everything in life is a balance. It's important to always have balance, strike balance in your life. And I think I'm still struggling with that Mm -hmm. because I care a lot about politics Sometimes I think I care too much about politics. <laughs> Sometimes I am too involved in the news. I'm reading too much news and I'm not paying enough attention to my personal life, my friends, my family. Um, so I do think figuring out that balance between caring and working on all the stuff that we were just talking about mm-hmm. and also just sort of enjoying life, that's my work in progress. Yeah. You know? Oh, and I, I think that. it's, you know, part of it is just, I tell myself, well, we're in the Trump era and it's sort of all hands on deck and Mm -hmm. what else are you going to do? But then when I'm having fun and away from it and and I'm unplugged, there's always this like feeling of guilt that like, I shouldn't be having so much fun. I should be paying attention. (laughs) Mm. So you sort of go back and forth. I get that. Yeah. I think I'm starting to give myself a little bit of grace when I do unplug. And I'm like, I can't. I can't do it every day. Like cell phones need to charge. (laughs) So if I'm a battery, and we are, we are these sort of like walking, talking batteries, right? Like you can run out 
And so I've I've given myself a little more space finally to not feel that guilt if I take a day or two days off. But then what happens is like on day three, I, I'm looking at everybody going, what did I miss? What's going on? That's like, how I, yeah. Send me the best 10 articles. But I also love it. We went to Maine for the fourth and we were there for a couple of days. And I sort of, I was like casually looking at Twitter, but I mostly put my phone down. And then we get on the plane to come back here and I like dive in because the pod was Monday and it's like 20 minutes on Twitter. And I was just like, I felt more informed, but my blood pressure yeah. <laughs> was already on the rise. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm back and a million things have gone wrong yeah. and everything seems awful and here we go. Here Let's do we it. go. Yeah. <laughs> Another I, week. But you know what? I'm glad we're paying attention. I think it's important. Obviously, duh, I'm like the biggest super fan ever. And, you know, if you guys like need a coffee person, I would come <laughs> and do that. Of course. Just to hang out. Yeah. Be like, what else do you need? <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for coming by. Yeah, for sure. This was fun to do. Thanks. Cool. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Brilliant Anatomy.